We'll be in John chapter 6, and uh, as you're turning there, let me remind us that John is a photo album filled with pictures telling the story of Jesus, and I will go ahead and give you the main point of this text up front tonight. Uh, it is a familiar one to us with a little bit different spin, and that is that Jesus is divine, and he is sovereign over everything, including the laws of nature. And that's going to be the tweak for tonight. Let me also say this. Uh, as we work through books of the Bible, we typically anchor ourselves in one text. John 6, 21 and following, or 16 and following, 16 to 21 rather, will be that text tonight. However, we will also refer to Matthew and Mark's account, Matthew 14, Mark 6, because they include some important details in their retelling of this story that John does not. So that being said, let me establish the context for us and then we'll get right to it. First thing to notice would be the fact that this is included in multiple gospels, just like David taught us last week, shows us how important it is, shows us that this is something that we need to pay careful attention to. And the fact that this is coming right after the feeding of the 5,000, which we also learned last week, was really probably more the feeding of the 10 to 20,000, because it was 5,000 men and women, and so when you, uh, or men, so when you, when you add in the, the women and children, the crowd grows exponentially. And what seems to have happened there is right after Jesus did that miracle, provided this food for them, there's an, a move, the movement that springs up immediately to try to make him king. And of course, Jesus is king over everything, but he was not ready to be the earthly king at that point. And so he takes his disciples and they exit stage left, so to speak. Uh, if you've ever seen any footage of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones trying to get away from the crowd sometime during the 1960s, that is kind of how I like to imagine this. Jesus and his band get away. And the way they get away is going to be interesting. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But let's take a look at verse 16. It says this, When evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, a couple things to pay attention to there. First, let's talk weather and geography. The Sea of Galilee, where they were, is really more like a large lake, by the way. And it was 700 feet below sea level. And so what would happen is cooler air from the northern mountains in the southeast tablelands would rush down into the lake and displace the moist, warm air that was there and cause a violent churning in the water. This happened on the regular. And it is into that context that Jesus sends his disciples. Now, speaking of sending those disciples, I'm sure it wasn't like this when they went out, but Jesus knew what was going to happen which makes it very interesting that he sent them out. In fact, Matthew's account, 14.22, tells us that he made the disciples get into the boat. That word could also be translated compelled or to compel by force or persuasion to constrain. And so the picture that is painted right here off the bat at the beginning of this gospel account is that Jesus is sending these guys out into trouble. Now, let's talk about just how bad it was. Matthew 14, 24 says this. 
But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And that language there for beaten literally means tormented. Scripture is very graphic at this point. The wind was against them. It takes on almost a character of its own. And they were sailing straight into this maelstrom of terror. Clarence Edward McCartney describes it like this, using a little sanctified imagination. Peter, no doubt, took command. And you can see him standing there holding the tiller with his stalwart arm and his beard anointed with the foam of the sea. As in stentorian tones, he commands the disciples to trim the ship, lower the sails, take to the oars. Where there was calm just a moment ago, now all this tumult and confusion. And as the tempest rages over the lake, the ship tosses up and down like a cork in the great waves. And the white foam of the great rollers gleaming in the blackness of the night, like some teeth of the monster of the sea. So that helps us get a picture of the kind of situation that they were in. And remember, the the big idea of what John is including this for our benefit, for the earliest audience's benefit, is to show the sovereignty of God, the reality of the divinity of Jesus over all things. But there's also plenty of secondary points that we can make here as well. And when we think about this, Let's think about this fact that Jesus sent them out into the storm. So if the first point is Jesus is divine and sovereign over everything, the second point needs to be something like this, that the storms of life come upon us for a variety of reasons. Because here's the thing about this passage. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's a real storm with real disciples and real trouble on a real night. But boy, it's also a real pointer to the storms of life that befall us all. Now, why do they befall us? Well, several reasons. First of all, the world is broken. It's not operating the way that it should. And so there are some things that are going to befall all of us. Sickness, even death, that storm will come for us at some time unless Christ returns while we're still alive. Then beyond that, Sometimes we get ourselves into storms because of disobedience. Think about Jonah. He ended up in his storm because he did not do what God said. But this is different. These guys end up in this storm because they do exactly what God said. Their obedience is what led them into this kind of trouble. Now, that's a little bit of a head scratcher, right? But this is not new. In fact, this is the way it has always been. For people that follow God. Think about Moses. He would have never felt rejected by a complaining group of people if at the burning bush he had said, eh, I'm out. No thanks. You think about Daniel. He wouldn't have faced the lion's den, all of the other trials he endured, unless he had obeyed God. Think about the Hebrew children. All that they endured, eventually ending up in the fiery furnace because of their obedience. You fast forward to the New Testament. Look at all of the apostles and the trouble that found them because of their obedience to Jesus. Paul being the greatest example. If he had just stayed in Tarsus, not a big deal. So sometimes disobedience lands us in storms, but sometimes obedience lands us in storms. 
But here's the other thing that we need to know about this. In the midst of that, we see Jesus in a profound way that we probably would not have seen him had that storm not come upon us. We see the revelation of his character. We see the revelation of his power. We see the goodness of his heart in a unique way precisely because of the storm that he sometimes takes us out into. Those disciples that night might have wondered, has he forgotten us? He's up there praying on that mountain. That's what the other gospels tell us. Here we are fighting for our lives, about to drown. Nowhere is he around. That surely would have been in their thoughts and in their hearts. But was that really true? Of course not. Jesus saw. Jesus knew. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, in his account, it says Jesus saw them. And then here in John's version, verse 17, it says it was now dark. So something is happening, whether it's lightning or maybe Jesus in his divine mind's eye, he sees what's going on. Not like he didn't know about it beforehand, but they now become aware that he is clued in. That would be our third point. That even in the reality of what we are enduring, the Lord sees and the Lord knows. He knows about the depth of the storm. He knows about its difficulty. Matthew 14, 25 also adds an interesting detail here that we would be wise to pay attention to. He says it like this. He says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And one of the commentators pointed out that the route that he would have walked to get from where he was to where they were would have likely been exactly the same path that they would have taken. And part of the insight that they were offering there was, isn't that just like the incarnation? Isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, that he is a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So even though we may feel alone in the midst of our storm, we never are. Even though we may feel forgotten and unseen in the midst of our storm, we never are. And Jesus in his own way knows what it's like to be where we are. That's also what the psalmist tells us over in Psalm 139, 7 through 10. He says this, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you were there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, let's also think about this. Jesus comes to them, as it says here in the text, in the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 and 6 in the morning. That would have been the darkest part of the night. The time when they were the most exhausted, the most miserable, the most tired, wondering literally if they were going to see the next morning. And I think that raises a question for us, doesn't it? Why did Jesus delay? He saw, he knew, he knew they were about to die. Why did he wait? Here's the honest truth. 
I can't tell you for sure. John doesn't tell you. Matthew doesn't tell you. But here's what we do know. This is not unlike what Jesus does in other places. Remember the story of Lazarus? John chapter 11. We'll see that in just a few weeks. What does Jesus do? He waits until Lazarus' illness progresses all the way to the point of death. And then he shows up. Why would he do that? Well, it's the same thing. I can't tell you for sure. But here's what I do know. First of all, fourth point, Jesus' deliverance operates on his timetable and his methodology, not ours. That's hard truth, but is that not true? Jesus gets to decide when and how and where he's going to show up to help. Now that flies in the face of all of our modern sensibilities, right? The way we like to think about it as Westerners, there's a problem, God's the solution, let's pray, we get what we want, onward. Sometimes that works out, sometimes it doesn't. And in the mysterious providence of God, we must trust Him. Though we don't know exactly why He waited, I can tell you what was happening in the midst of that waiting. Those disciples fearing for their lives in the bottom of that boat were growing more and more desperate. And by the time Jesus does show up, you talk about gratitude. You talk about thankfulness. You talk about them being amazed in wonder and worship. You'll see that at the end of the story. Their hearts were prepared to glorify Jesus. Because of his delay. So there's something that God is doing in the midst of their hearts and in the midst of our hearts when the move of God tarries. On top of that, think about all the storms in which we find ourselves. God does a unique and profound work in our hearts in season of struggle and in seasons of waiting. Now, would we choose that path? Of course not. None of us would. But is there grace to us in that path? You better believe it. And do we learn things about God on that path that perhaps we wouldn't have learned another way? You better believe it. Do we learn more about ourselves and our need for Him and the depth of our sin and the, the only and sole provision that Christ is for us? You better believe it. So knowing the goodness of God and the heart of our Father toward us, we can trust that He is up to something good even when something bad is happening. Isn't that the message of Romans 8, 28? For we know that in all things God works together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. So this would be my encouragement in the midst of this difficulty. Whether you find yourself in the boat tonight or not, you will at some point. Don't waste your time of waiting. Don't waste it. God wants to show you things about yourself. He wants to show you things about himself. He wants to show you the greatness of your sin. He wants to show you the even greater greatness of your Savior. Savior. 
And whenever we find ourselves in a storm of life, we want to come out the other side of it better, not bitter. Though we may be broken, we want to be healing of soul. And God uses storms in that way, in a way that he uses almost nothing else. This is right in line with what Job said over in chapter 42, verse 5. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eye sees you. So whatever you're waiting on tonight, don't waste it. God is wanting to show you himself. Now, let's jump back in verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. <clears throat> now let's talk about this just a little bit here. The fact that Jesus does this particular miracle in the sea, I think, is not an accident. See, in the Old Testament, miracles that took place around the water or involving the water were reserved for God alone. You see this in Psalm 29, you see it in Psalm 89, Psalm 107. And so the fact that he is doing this in the Sea of Galilee is helping them see this is the prophesied one that was to come. Only God can do stuff with the ocean. And here he is doing it. Now, I also think this shows us something about human nature that we need to pay attention to here as well. You would think that when they saw Jesus on the water, that, that something different would have happened, right? That they would have looked and they would have said, that's Jesus, we're saved, high five. You know, they're hugging each other. This is exactly the opposite response. It, it reminds me of that old, uh, I think it's like an epic poem or something, the ancient mariner, right? That there's this water demon, that's what they're thinking is coming to get them. Somebody might have even wondered, would it have been better if we just drowned in the storm and now we're going to get eaten by whatever is happening? But how does Jesus address that? Look back at verse 20. He calls out to them and he identifies himself and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Now this notion here about it is I, some people point out that the original language that is being used here is basically him saying, it is, I am. And part of the connection there is he is helping them see, not only is God the only one who can do miracles here at the ocean, but I am that God doing miracles here at the ocean. And so in the midst of all that, he is revealing himself further. Now beyond that, and yes, I hear the rain too, by the way. And it's not lost on me that I'm literally preaching about a storm and a storm is taking a place. So I'm trying to decide if that's Satan trying to prevent us from hearing this or God reminding us that this is exactly what we need to hear tonight. Either way, I'll just preach loud. How about that? Now also in the midst of this, one thing to be noticed here, not in John's account, but in Matthew's account, is that somehow once they see that it's Jesus, Peter steps out toward him onto the water. Now, 
on the one hand, I'm super encouraged by that. On the other hand, I'm completely baffled by that. That if you think you're about to die, why is your immediate response, I should get involved and walk on the water with Jesus? I've never understood that logic. But that's what he did. And if I care when I get to heaven, I'll follow up and ask him about that. But one thing we can learn from his sojourn on the sea, let's call it. You see it in verse 28, Matthew 14. It says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. So maybe it was a little test. I don't know. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But watch this. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I don't know about you, but I feel that. I feel that in my bones. Because if I couldn't relate to Peter before, I can definitely relate to Peter now. Because just like him, sometimes we get excited, sometimes we step out of the proverbial boat, and immediately, or relatively quickly, we can begin to notice the waves and the wind around us, speaking proverbially here, of course. And just like Peter, if we focus on Jesus we're going to be okay. But if just like Peter, we begin to see the waves and wind and focus on those things, what's going to happen? We're going to sink. And so even though this is this wonderful historical tale, it is much more than that. It is also such a pointer to the way things work in life. So part of the takeaway that I think we can make from this is to be like Peter in the better moment here. Focus on Jesus. Do the bold thing. Get out of the boat. Go to where Jesus is. But unlike Peter, keep focusing on Jesus because we'll sink otherwise. And let me tell you something. This world has no shortage of waves and wind for us to be distracted by and to focus on. You don't even have to turn on the news to see them. You're just aware of them in our culture. They are literally coming to us from every side, from physical harm to biological problems to to, to just all kinds of ways that we are reminded that the world is broken. But we can't focus on that. We'll sink if we focus on that. We've got to focus on Jesus and keep moving ahead. Same thing as a church. There's 10,000 things that we could focus on that would cause us to sink. We must and will focus on Jesus. That's where you walk on the water. That's where you see the miraculous. That's where you see the God who is sovereign over all things show up and do what only He can do. Not focusing on the distractions. Focusing on the divine. Now, let's come on to the home stretch with this here. Because John ends his version of the story with this. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, there's a little bit of debate on exactly what's happening here. 
I think this is actually a bonus miracle on top of the other miracle. Okay? Not everybody thinks that. Seems like the commentators are kind of split on it. Some people look at this and go, oh, this is kind of like how Mark uses immediately. They were just kind of swept up in the moment and, and the boat just got there quickly. But I'm not so sure about that. It looks to me more like Jesus is done with a little object lesson and he just immediately takes the boat to the shore. There's a lot of folks that think that. So I would file this one under like 1960 Star Trek's the, the curious case of the teleporting boat that Jesus takes them to shore. Because again, it's the same thing. He's showing his sovereignty, his providence, his power over nature and all that's going on around it. It's also a further fulfillment of exactly what you see in Psalm 107. Pick it up in verse 28. It says this, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad when the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. So Jesus does this right in their very midst. And I love the way that Matthew ends this story. And he says this, When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So they got the memo. And you know from the rest of the Gospels, it's not all roses and rainbows from here on. Quite the opposite, actually. But in that moment, they had clarity about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And my sincere hope is that where he ended this passage would be where we end this passage. With the worship of Jesus. With the understanding that he was the prophesied Messiah, sovereign over all things and with us in the storm at work in the storm, shaping us, teaching us, growing us, stretching us, making us more like Himself in the midst of the storm, causing us to be more humble and more useful and more fruitful in ministry. So I think the question I want to end with tonight is this. What is God doing in your storm tonight? How is he helping you through this passage take the next step on your journey of worshiping him and knowing him in his greatness and his glory? And you might say, Dustin, I'm not in the storm right now. Okay, great. That's great. But you're going to be soon. It's the nature of life. And I think even if things aren't too bad on the outside, all of us carry some storm with us on the inside. And in the midst of that, the goal is the same. Jesus is revealing Himself to you tonight as the one who's sovereign over all things and who loves you and cares for you and is with you in whatever it is you face. So let's go to Him now and ask for His help. And He will help, just like He helped Peter and just like He helped these disciples. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful to be together tonight. It is not lost on us. 
Like we are literally in a storm as we talk about this passage. Lord, I pray that the same response that they had would be cultivated within us as well. That we would worship You. That we would indeed see the midst of Your glory. That You would shape us and change us and make us more like Christ. That You would cause us to be even more helpful to one another. That You would cause us to be even more encouraging to one another as a church. And that You would let us see, just as they did, what only You can do. In Jesus' name.